<laughs> no, we didn't plan the wellness fair just for me. But between reading MRIs and skin cancers, it sure sounds like we did. <clears throat> Let me just say this about the wellness fair. Uh, you know, wellness fairs are not the gospel. Um, car washes are not the gospel. Feeding multitudes is not the gospel. These fall into the realm of what we would refer to, I think last week Matt had shared something during worship about common grace, where God decides that he will pour uh, his kindness in a measure into people's lives. It doesn't save them, but it makes them aware of God as the source of their life. And so things like wellness fairs give us the opportunity to reach out into people's lives through an area of need in their life. And as you can hear, all the different things that are going to be offered, there's probably many folks that you might know, and there's many folks in the community that are going to have word of this uh, that can come and receive some, some kind of help that they need in their life. And that help is then going to be attached to the church through which the gospel can then come. So we do these sorts of things so that there is an opportunity for the gospel. Uh, Not that anyone can get saved by attending a wellness fair, but it may open a door through which someone can walk and they would either uh, come to a service, build a relationship with somebody in the church, or attend an alpha, and then they would encounter the gospel. So that's why we do wellness fairs, not just because we have pastors who have bad knees. And just to clarify, uh, (laughs) Seth was not involved, and the story in Samuel 17, the rock hits him in the head, in the head. That's where your head was. Yeah. See, either his aim was a little bit off. I don't know what happened. All all I remember is it was after a massive slam dunk, glass was falling, and I think I fell bad, you know. I was too busy picking glass out of my head, and actually, you have to ask the guys that were there. It didn't look nearly that cool, apparently. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what I have. I'll find out sometime this week. But this morning, we are continuing in our study on personal idols. So if you turn to James chapter 4 with me, this is a new thing. I'm not sure I can preach sitting down, so... I'm not quite sure how to handle any moment of excitement that I feel. I may, I, at least the chair has wheels on it. I might could actually roll around a little bit. That would be as much movement as I can have. You know, we, we started this series talking about the commonness of the effect of idolatry in our lives. Where there is an idol present, and there always is probably much more than just one idol present in our lives... Where there's an idol present, there's disorder. So when you look into your life and you look into the categories of your life, whether it is relational disorder, and you can think over the past week and think about difficult conversations you had or people you've been avoiding or struggles you're having in a close relationship with someone else, there's disorder there. Well, there's a reason why there's disorder there. Or it could be disorder in your emotions. You could have spent this past week battling with anger or just irritability or aggressiveness, all of a sudden it's been coming out of you. Or maybe on the other side of that, a lack of eagerness in your life or withdrawnness or, or, or a sense of depression is in your life. Well, that's, that's disorder. And that disorder comes from somewhere. It, it doesn't just happen. Uh, things happen in life, but we respond to those things. So much of idolatry is is how we're responding to life and whether or not we're managing our homes well. Everything from the financial aspects to the time that we're spending to just if you walk in and things are disheveled. That disorder comes from somewhere. Um, So when we look in our lives, you, you don't escape the reality that something in our hearts is driving us to do certain things and driving us to avoid certain things. Well, that's what idolatry is about. It's, it's about the desires that are inside of us. And we've been covering a lot of different angles on that for a number of weeks now. Uh, today, I, I want to introduce us to, I think, what is, uh, I think, the most important remedy to idolatry. And I'm going to call today's message, Humility, the Great Reset Button. Now, if you look here in James, James moves us towards humility. 
ends. Let me back up a little bit further. We've been looking at verse 1 through uh, verse 10 here in James chapter 4. You know, if you back up into chapter 3, there's been some preceding thought. You know, contextually, something was driving James' uh, next thought that comes out and he elaborates on in chapter 4. Look in, in verse 16, and I just want to walk us through this progression that James gives us. This is the progression from disorder uh, to freedom from idolatry, which really finds itself in humility. That's where our freedom comes from. But this is where he begins. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, now, a lot of what I hope this series has done for us is it's gotten us to not just look at problems that exist on the surface of our lives, but to, to identify a problem on the surface and then move deeper to find out why is that thing there? Where did it come from? So we can identify quickly disorder and vile practices. And you look in our lives, and all of us have to be honest, there's disorder and there's even vile practices. But the next question is, well, where did those come from? Well, according to these verses all throughout this section, uh, they come along with jealousy and selfish ambition. I want something in my life. And if I want it bad enough, and you get in the way of it, or a circumstance gets in the way of it, well, then I'm going to become angry. I may become jealous if somebody else ventures into that category. All this stuff is floating around in us. And James starts there, and he says, but the wisdom, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, now that's what restoration looks like. I'm looking at my life and I say, God, what are you wanting me to experience? Well, you're wanting me to experience insight and wisdom from above, from you, that when it's active in my life, it produces this effect. So on the inside of me, when what God is doing is, is at work in me, on the outside, the experience becomes peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Listen, idols are unreasonable. You ever try and reason with your idols? They're unreasonable. You ever try and help somebody to reason with their idols? Idols are unreasonable. Verse 18, he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So now he's moved from the outside to the inside. He's taken us into the heart of idolatry. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he moves this idolatry to, to the offense that it is to God. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We looked a couple of weeks ago at how idolatry gets in us and it begins to affect our prayer life. We take idolatry into the prayer closet with us. All of a sudden we're mad at God and we're twisting God's arm to get him to do something that when we examine it, why do I want this so bad? Do I want this because it brings forth the kingdom of God and shows forth the glory of God? This is why most of us are almost never in touch with righteous anger. You know, I know if you're tempted sometimes to explain that your anger is righteous anger. (laughs) Righteous anger is angry about that which has to do with the glory of God. And most of the time when I'm angry, it's because somebody has crossed my path the wrong way. That's about the glory of me. You're in the way of my glory. Get out of my way. Well, We can take that into the prayer closet. Next thing you know, we're asking wrong. Verse 4, you adulterous people. In other words, your heart has become unfaithful. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. His spirit, God's desire, is deeply passionate. Now, I, I take this and, and all these things, we, we, could, we could have had a year-long series on some of these things. But I, I have to take that into my heart a certain way, that there is the God of the universe who has a jealous passion 
for his life to dwell in me. Does that blow your mind? I mean, I've got to wonder, God, what, what are you thinking? Why, why would you want to be a part of my life that way? But yet he does. So much, though, that he is bothered by the fact that something else would dwell there in his place. Somebody asked me a great question a couple of weeks ago uh, about the issue of jealousy that's here. On the one hand, you have verse 16 correcting us for jealous, jealousy and selfish ambition. And here you have God jealous. And you have the scripture declaring that God is jealous. Actually, his name is jealous. Well, how come God can be jealous and we're not supposed to be jealous? Well, I don't want to chase this too far. There is certain elements that it would be appropriate for you to be jealous about. <clears throat> Very few. But there would be something. But for God to be jealous is completely righteous. Because see, unlike, unlike us, there's lots of us, and as we're going to see today, nothing was ultimately created for us. We, we are not the ultimate end of anything. And this is where humility has its difficulty. God is the ultimate end of all things. Everything travels its course and reaches its destination in God, not in me. So when it doesn't quite make it to me because of you or someone else and I get jealous, that's unrighteous jealousy. When it doesn't quite get to God to make much of God and show forth the glory of God, that's righteous jealousy on God's part because that's why it all exists. So it's right for God to be jealous, and, but, but it, it needs to warm our hearts a little bit. This is just not some God in the heaven full of power throwing lightning bolts. This is a God who has an affectionate jealousy and desire to live here, to be to me the most essential, most important, most vital dimension of who I am. God wants that for me and for you. That's, that's affection from God. And he's not casual about it. He's jealous over it. Okay, well, here, there's the problem. Verse 6, we get to the solution. In the midst of this idolatry, James says, but God gives more grace. Here's the solution to idolatry. God gives more or greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That, that therefore, you could put it at the beginning. So it's almost as though when God says, here, I'm going to give you grace, which is the means of the freedom for you to be overcoming idolatry. And I want you to submit yourself to me. Because I'm giving you this grace, humble yourselves and receive it. Now, there's a dimension here where God's grace is being poured out, but God's grace is, you know, the old illustration says, God's grace is poured out and finds its place to fill up the lowly places. I want to fill you up with my grace, God says, but my grace travels to the lowest points. So where you are proud and you are self-seeking and you are eager and ambitious for yourself, that's not a low place, and my grace will run off you just like that. So grace and humility must go together. Otherwise, you and I will know something of grace without ever experiencing grace. Humility puts us in a place to experience the grace of God. Andrew Murray in his, uh, one of, I think one of the most incredible books on the subject, Humility, says, It needs to be made clear that it is not sin that humbles, but grace. Grace deals with and takes away sin. The more abundant the experience of grace, the more intense the consciousness of being a sinner. Can you hold on to that? Because I want to make a point today that I think we don't like something about that. And it makes us miss out on both grace and the awareness of how we are to be humbled. The more abundant the experience of grace, the more intense the consciousness of being a sinner. I'm afraid that there are many who by strong impressions of self-condemnation and self-denunciation have sought to humble themselves, but who have to confess with sorrow that a humble spirit with its accompanying kindness and compassion, meekness and forbearance is still as far off as ever. 
Okay, can you go here with me for a moment? Especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time. We, you know, we're, we're Christians, we're in churches, we are encouraged to walk in holiness, which has to do with the manner of our living. It's the moment we are encouraged in holiness, some form of standard is set before us by the mere encouragement of it. Certain things are encouraged, certain things are not. And some will lay hold of that encouragement and turn those admonitions and encouragement into, into rules. Rules that one must keep. Rules that you must keep in order to get God on your side. Rules that you need to keep in order for God to be motivated to do something towards your life. And those rules turn into traditions. And from church to church, there's certain traditions. You know, the way you dress in some church is going to be monitored differently than the way you dress in another church because there's a tradition there. Personal practices, modes of language, uh, attitudes that you have, whether or not you participate in certain things or not, whether you go to a movie or not. Those things become rules. And quite honestly, the more rule-oriented you get, the more opinion-oriented you get, the more performance, i got to do some things-oriented you get, the more and more you drift from what he describes here. A humble spirit is accompanied by kindness and compassion meekness and forbearance. You get around people who are rule-oriented and performance-oriented, and what you won't find from them is kindness and compassion. Compassionate because you're breaking the rules, and the rules that are very important in this place. And so there's not the attitude of meekness and forbearing with one another. See, what humility should do for every one of us is before I get my nose out of joint about your sin, I'm already in touch with mine. And it should take the edges off of the way in which I deal with you. You If I think God brings, you know, if this is sin is in 31 Baskin-Robbins flavors here, and God pours out his wrath on chocolate chip mint, well, that's good because I hate chocolate chip men anyway. You'll never catch me eating that. But you eat that, don't you? I can't believe you would eat that. Well, what is it that I eat? You know, I eat rum raisin. That's my deal. Rum raisin. Or pistachio, maybe. Right? So God, I'm sure, feels different about those flavors than he does about this flavor over here. Because, see, I like those. I want to find a way to bend the Bible to make those tolerable. Those are okay, those are justifiable, but these over here draw the wrath of God. Now, quite honestly, all sin draws the wrath of God. All sin does. And when I'm dealing with you, before you share with me your chocolate chip mint flavor, I need to be in touch with my pistachio and rum raisin. Right, when, I, when I'm sitting in a counseling meeting with you, listen, I, I'm aware that in my life, my sin issues simply are not in your category today. They're in another category. It doesn't make me sinless. It doesn't make me better than you. It makes the grace of God equally as applicable to me because I know what I was like towards my wife and my children just yesterday. I know what my sin, how it affects those who walk with me when they have to put up with Uh, how well I am directing them or how well I'm not directing them. And so there'd be sin issues that make that less than attractive for me that I can find myself cooperating with. And then I bump into your issue. Your issue is just a different flavor. Now, when you encounter somebody else's sin, do you just rise to that? Like, can you believe this guy? I mean, oh, man, come here. You got to hear this. Like, we're so blown away. The only way I could be blown away by your sin is that I'm out of touch with mine. And the only way I can be out of touch with my sin is that I'm out of touch with God. He goes on and he says, Being occupied with self, even having the deepest of self-aberrance, can never free us from self. It is the soul that finds God to be everything that is so filled with his presence. There is no place for self. Not to be occupied with your sin, but to be fully occupied with God brings deliverance from self. Now, 
in this setting, you know, we will deal with issues of sin. If all you focus on is the issues of sin that exist in your life, then you will never encounter humility. You will, you will encounter Baskin-Robbins activity. Right? Remember this story from the, the Pharisee one day in Luke chapter 18. He says, Jesus, uh, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Interesting that they were righteous, and he treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is unbelievable. This is James 4 all over again. This guy's actually going to pray and say this to God. (laughs) I mean, we can say some stuff in prayer, right? But it just shows you. We could be here this morning, going through the motions, singing songs, praying prayers, reading Bible verses, and be just like this dude. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. That's a good place to start. Always good to start with gratitude before God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. (laughs) Uh, He quickly derailed. Extortioners, unjust, rocky road strawberry, right? Adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Listen, James 4 offers us the privilege of being humbled, humbling yourself. You, you don't want to have this become something God does to you. <clears throat> but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right, here's a Pharisee with all of his religion, but not humble. Because he's not been near God. One who, one who draws near to God experiences something. And that's where James is about to take us. Right? When he, he, he highlights our idolatry, he starts with all of our conflict, all the disorder in our lives, and he pulls us into our heart and he says, you want things. That's what your problem is. And you're adulterous toward God because you want them more than you want the glory of God in your life. So you've sinned ultimately against God. But listen, here's the good news. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Draw near to God. The project of humility cannot happen without the presence of God. You'll see why in just a moment. But to humble myself, I'm going to have to draw near to God. Let me just walk us through some folks who drew near to God. And watch what happens to them. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll look at these guys on the run here quickly. Old Testament Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, is about to draw near to God. Now, two things I want you to see that happens when folks in Scripture draw near to God. One is they become humbly aware of themselves. And secondly, they experience a grace-enabling movement in their life. I want you to catch this because... If you become aware of yourself and it becomes paralyzing in your life, right? Your sins are huge. All you're staring at is your sins. They're huge. I come to church. You mention sin. I'm a, I, uh, they're huge. Okay, enough already. It's, they're huge. Okay, the problem in that arena is all you're looking to is your sin. You're not drawing near to God. You're drawing near to your sin. And it will wear you out and beat you up one side and down the other. These men... We're very aware of their sin, but they were aware of something greater that swallowed up their sin. So humility comes from a, an awareness of God that brings an awareness of our own humility. But then secondly, it, it, it empowers us to live beyond that moment. Right? Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Okay, now Isaiah is in the presence of God. And look at the effect it has on him. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the first thing that happens when one gets in the presence of God. One very quickly gets an accurate assessment of themselves. I guarantee you the Pharisee ain't praying his prayer in this moment. He's not sticking his chest out going, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Notice how quickly Isaiah places himself amongst the people. He is a man of unclean lips first, and he dwells amongst others just like himself. He doesn't start with them. He starts with himself. He said, this is what humility looks like. Well, where did humility come from? It came from the nearness that this man was experiencing to God. This is why God says, draw near to me. Now, what an amazing thing. You have a God who's inviting you, and your first response is going to be, I need to get away from him. I mean, Isaiah is undone in this moment, terrified undone in this moment. Can you please catch this? Because there is such a lack of preaching in the world today about God. So much of it is about us. How to have a certain life. How to overcome this issue. How to deal with that thing. How to be successful. It's all about us. The Bible's about God. And when you let it be about God, you find out that there's a God in this Bible that's terrifying. And it should put you in some strange crosshair where the Bible invites you to do something that everything in you says, don't do it. Back away from God. Do you remember when God showed up on Mount Sinai? He invited all the, He invited a nation to be his own, and he's going to have a meeting with them. Do you remember what all the people said? The presence of God begins to be manifest on the mountain, and they all begin to back away, and they say, uh, Moses, you talk to God. And let us know what he says. And they all wanted away from him. But yet you have a God who's calling, draw near to me. Even though you're going to be terrified in the process of doing that, that terror is going to put you in your proper place, which is what humility is all about. Now, what happens in this moment of deep humility? It says, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Both of these should be what it looks like to encounter God. Holy terror and amazing grace. About the moment when Isaiah must want to run for his life, God sends more grace and cleanses his awareness of what makes him to want to shy from God because he's aware of his flavor of sin before God. And God is now cleansing him so that he can remain in the presence of God. Now, look what happens next. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now just moments before this, Isaiah is a man who is very much aware of his uncleanness before God. But now he is going to serve God. Something's happened here. See, in the presence of God, you you can look upon the greatness and the grace of God and you can be humbled in who it is that you are not before this great one. And not be paralyzed. You know how many people will make some kind of a comment seeking to flee 
from the discomfort of being made aware of their sin brings. I want to flee from that. And then the more they become aware of it, the more they become aware of it, the more they become paralyzed by it. And it's all they can think of, all they hear. It's frustrating. It's a reminder of failure over and over and over again. But that's not Isaiah. Isaiah is ready to go. He's ready to be sent. He's ready to be used by God. He's going to be picked up by God and launched into a ministry as a prophet. He is not paralyzed, although he is quite aware of his sin, isn't he? Something greater than his sin in that moment has swallowed his sin and atoned for it so that now he's released from it to serve God. Now, this would be several places. I won't take this long with each of these. But, you know, Ezekiel begins his ministry in chapter 1 with a similar encounter. There's this vision that he gets, this heavenly vision of the four living creatures and the wheels, and it's a big, complicated vision that he has. But in the midst of all that, in verse 26, chapter 1, Ezekiel says, And above the expanse, over their heads, over these creatures' heads, I mean, this is a... This is a colossal demonstration of the the greatness of God, these incredible beings like the seraphim that Isaiah encountered. Above the expanse over the heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of uh, of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. Now, can you get the picture here? He's having a hard time describing the presence of God. He's just grabbing at things that he can maybe pick, give some picture of. And downward from what had the appearance of the waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. There was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is, that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around him. This is a confusing picture, isn't it? But it's an awesome picture. He's looking on the presence of God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So this is a common occurrence. When one encounters the presence of God, it lays man low. It undoes us. He didn't put into words what Isaiah said, but he put into his body language exactly what Isaiah said. Now look what happens in chapter 2. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. See, once again, here's a man, same encounter, and draws near to the presence of God, is humbled before God, and then is enabled by God to go and do and live. This, This is a common experience. And, you know, the idea, if you go back to James chapter 4, the idea that, you know, I, I, want, I want this religion thing in my life. I want God in my life. I, you know, I just, I just don't like, I don't like it when preachers make me aware of my sin. Okay? Quite honestly. I just don't like that. I mean, is that really necessary? Um, well, I have to say, given that we are creatures, if we ever intend to draw near to God, the first thing you're going to become aware of is your sinfulness. It's just not the end of the story. I mean, we we just heard God gives a greater grace. Humble yourselves. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. And then look what it says after that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Here we go again. (laughs) We're back on my failures and my issues and my weakness. it's, It's not possible to draw near to God without experiencing an awareness that I don't have any business being here. It's when you realize that and then God thrusts his hands around you in grace and he enables you to have your lips cleansed by the purity of God and to have his spirit come take up his place and dwell in you. You are experiencing grace in that moment because you know I don't deserve this. And yet God is giving more grace to me. See, this this is an encounter with God. 
When Paul spoke of grace, he did it quite often against the backdrop of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. It says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. How many of y'all have had times in your life today where you have felt unworthy? What What do you do with that? I've heard bad advice on what to do with that. It's almost as though... If any Christian in any moment feels unworthy, it's like, oh, let's pour water on that. Let's douse that as fast as we can. No, 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 no. You should never feel unworthy. And like we try to talk everybody out of feeling unworthy. I, I don't know that it's possible for anyone to draw near to God without feeling unworthy. You're in the presence of greatness. You're in the presence of the ultimate greatness. You're in the presence of the one that everything was created to make a big deal out of him. And the moment I get around him, I quickly realize, I don't make a big deal out of you. I make a big deal out of that and this and him and her. How could you not feel unworthy in that moment? And the Apostle Paul, I'm the least, I'm unworthy to be even called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But... Right along with that feeling. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And Paul is living a life of movement. Paul is up to stuff, living for the glory of God. He is not paralyzed, though he feels so unworthy. First Timothy says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, this is a man who is experiencing the nearness of God and he is experiencing humility. Because when he encounters you, he doesn't consider you to be the worst sinner. He considers himself to be the worst sinner. And can you immediately take that and stick it in a relational conflict right now and see, wow, what a difference that would make if in a conflict I considered myself to be the worst of the two sinners here. I'm the worst. Listen, I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul's resume was much, much better than mine. And if he was thinking he's the worst... I know I got stuff on him. <laughs> I know I'm the worst. I mean, he and I can fight it out and we can argue because I know I'm worse than him. Do you think of yourself that way? Revelation 1, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. This, this is grace. This is immediately the movement of grace to the humble saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Immediately, humility, the outpouring of grace, and the release into activity. Do you see this? This is over and over and over again what the nearness of God produces in our lives. Derek Thomas says, it is the appropriate sense of awe in the presence of one wholly other than ourselves. Not until we have compared ourselves to God's majesty are we sufficiently aware of our lowly state. Listen, do not do this. This this is getting in touch with your sinfulness by getting in touch with God. Do not take an unguided tour of your sinfulness. You will only end up condemned, confused, frustrated, full of fear, angry, It's when one gets near to God that a guided tour of our sinfulness is going to meet the grace of God in that moment. And I won't be paralyzed in that moment. I'm going to be released into living a life, which is what everyone else here encountered. Humility, your outline there, it says humility is the great reset button. Let me just tell you why that is. Andrew Murray says, when God created the universe... 
It was with the objective of making those he he created partakers of his perfection and blessedness, thus showing forth the glory of his love and wisdom and power. This is God's purpose for creating us. God, as the ever-living, ever-present, ever-acting one, who upholds all things by the word of his power, and in whom all things exist, meant that the relationship of his creatures to himself would be one of unceasing absolute dependence. Humility, the place of entire dependence upon God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of his creatures. And so pride, the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure, of every disorder. This is, this is why when James begins with disorder, it's, it's not possible that he could end anywhere else. He's about to restore us to the right place and restore God to the right place. And really, that's what humility is about. Humility, putting your outline here, humility is a word of order. It exists where things are in their proper place. When God is at the center and all of creation is in orbit around him for his glory. That's humility. It's when things are properly ordered in our lives. Now, you walk a little bit through the origins of pride and its effect on our lives. What do we find when we trace the origin of sin? How did sin get on the scene here? Go back to the Garden of Eden. We find Adam and Eve in the garden. They're about to be tempted, right? Something, I, I want to take us into the nanosecond just before they eat. What was the fuse that set off the explosion of sin? Because right, the sin, right, the sin was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God had said, you shall not eat of that tree. Don't do it. Well, they ate of it. There, there was a sin. But, but there was a fuse that was lit, Before that explosion of sin into humanity, Genesis 3, verse 6, says this. So when the woman saw that the tree, she's not eating of the tree yet. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Sin explodes into the human race. But just before sin explodes, you could have heard a fuse was lit. Because something's going on in Eve. Because she sees something here that lures her and attracts her to ever eat of this. See, she saw something, if you will, she saw something available to her for benefit to her. This is good. It'll open my eyes. I'm going to become wise. This is going to benefit me. And that tree is a shortcut to getting it. That's what the tree was for her. It was a shortcut around, you cut out the middleman. Who was the middleman? God. Now think for a moment. Does anybody actually think that God didn't intend for them to experience any of these things? The tree was good, and it was a delight, and it was a source of insight and wisdom. Do you think God had intended, I've created you, put you in the garden, don't eat of that tree, and you're never going to know goodness or delight or insight and wisdom? Of course not. They would have experienced all those things, but they would have experienced it in a dependent relationship on God. And therefore, good would have come into their life in a manner that they could handle good. Delight would have come into their life in a way that was appropriate for them to experience it. And insight and wisdom would have come into their lives in a way that God was releasing it to them. So what the tree was, it was a shortcut. It was a means for me to get from me what I think I need. See, that that was lit in Eve before the explosion went off. See, this is, this is where pride is in us. And what's interesting here, she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. To make one. If I can just have that, it will make me something. As soon as you start thinking that way, you're in the throes of idolatry. 
as though someone created by God, in relationship with God, needs to be made something. Is, is Eve deficient in this moment? She's been created by God. God has said his creation is good. She's not lacking anything. But yet somehow pride convinces us. If I could just have that, it would make me something. See, then this is where all the conflict and all the problems and all the anger comes in and all the jealousy comes in. Because, you know, if, if, I can just, if I can just get married, that'll make me happy. If my children would just be successful, that'll make me look good. If I could just have that money, then I, you know, all these things, they want to make me into something. And that was where the temptation was. Oh, you want that? Oh, don't wait around for God to bring it to you. Here, snatch and grab. The tree's available. Grab the tree. It'll take you right to that thing and you'll have it. That's what idolatry forms. Now, where does that come from? That, that feel, that sense, that pursuit, that's what pride is. And this is not the first time we encounter this sort of thing in somebody. Right? Ezekiel 28 introduces us to a creature that God has created who had the very same issue in his own life. Ezekiel 28, this prophecy is both given to a human king, but it also frames insight into Satan himself. Verse 13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Verse 14, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were in the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity or unrighteousness was found in you. What was that? That's the same fuse. Before he pulls the trigger, something rises up in Satan's heart. In the abundance of your trade, verse 16, you were filled with violence. In, the midst, in your midst, and you sin, so I cast you as, profa- as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. What went off in his heart? It was pride in the heart of Satan who wanted now to snatch and grab something. See, right now, in the moment of pride, Satan wants a different order. He doesn't want God's order. Right? Isaiah 14 kind of highlights a little bit of that. Isaiah 14, verse 12, also speaking similarly as Ezekiel word. Isaiah says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and we have an issue of the heart again. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the same voice that says, Eve, eat of the tree. God knows in that day you will be what? Like him. I will ascend. I will. See, this is, what, this is the very nature of pride. The nature of pride says, I don't like God's order. I don't like the way God's ordered things. I want a better position than the one I have. I want to improve my lot in life. I want more status. I want to be appreciated more. I want people to think highly of me. I want, I want a better position. I want a more comfortable position. I want greater ease in my life. I want life to be better oriented around me. That's what Satan said. I will ascend. I will be like the most. Let me change the order here of things. And that's what pride is after. It is eager to change the order. Pride wants what belongs to God. Which is what idolatry is by nature. Look in your outline. Let me read a couple of these lines with you. Pride is the fuse that sets off the explosion of sin. Still true today. Pride is at the heart of idolatry because it is the force that displaces God. It did it in the garden. It did it in Satan's life. It'll do it in ours. 
We put other gods in place because we no longer want God's creation to be about him. We want it to be about us. We want to change the order of things. My success, my comfort, my acceptance, my reputation, my thrills, my pleasure. I want, I want life to orbit around me a certain way. That's in me. And then the next thing I do with that is going to be some sinful thing you're going to bump into. Pride is at the very heart of displacing God. Pride is that iniquity in me that wants life to be oriented around me. Listen to this thought from Andrew Murray. So pride, the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. And this just makes sense as to why humility is our only hope to sever the root. Humility is not something that we bring to God or that he bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness that comes when we see how truly God is everything. When the creature realizes that this is a place of honor and consents to be the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves, he sees that humility is simply this, acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God his place. It's the issue of pride that launches us into a thousand sins. But the very nature of pride is simply us trying to change the order of God's creation. I want to move up. Even if it's at your expense. Even if I've got a sin against you to do it. And me moving up can only reveal one very critical thing. Is I have taken my eyes off of the greatness of God. Who would have absorbed every thought of worthiness that I could have ever had. So that I would not have been thinking I'm worthy to move up. You know, listen, I have an allergic reaction to the words deserve. And it's used a lot. It's used of nice guys. I mean, I had to choke down listening to everybody tell me how much Drew Brees deserved to win the Super Bowl this year. See, when I hear that, that is an ignorant, ignorant thing to say. And it can only be said by people who are not aware of God, they're only aware of people. Now, compared to some others, sure. He's more deserving than somebody else compared to this guy or that guy. Yeah. But that's, that's not the conversation to have with my soul. There is one who is ultimately deserving of all things. The universe was created to orient around him and find worth there. So if we want to talk worthy, let's look there. Let's not look here. Let's look there. Let's talk deserving by looking there to God, to who he is. When we stop seeing God in his glory, then all of a sudden, I deserve, I deserve to be treated better than that. I mean, I got shafted at work. and this, You do not speak to me like that. Why not? Because I don't deserve to be spoken to that way. Isn't that the rest of the statement? Someone named Mrs. Smith is quoted in, in the book Humility. I don't know who Mrs. Smith is, but her words are worth repeating. She says, me is a most exacting person, requiring the best seat and the highest place for itself. Right? I mean, do you have issues where you're demanding of others, expecting certain things, expecting to be treated a certain way, expecting people to make room for you a certain way in their life, in their world? Right? That's pride. She goes on and says, and feeling grievously wounded, I like that word, wounded if its claim is not recognized. Wounded. Do you feel wounded? See, wounded's a very different word than pride, isn't it? I feel prideful. I feel wounded. Oh, you poor thing. Well, what happened? Well, it's, it's, it's just, it's hard for me to even talk about it because, you know, I'm a very sensitive person. Listen, you might not think of it, but sensitivity, woundedness, self-pity, that's all pride. It has to do with what I think I deserve. See, I feel sorry for myself because circumstances or people have done an injustice to me. That's why I feel sorry for me. And if you knew my situation, you'd feel sorry for me too. 
As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to spend some time telling you about my situation in the next few minutes. <laughs> uh, because, see, I, I, I want that feeling of self-pity because self-pity tells me I'm a victim and I deserved better than this. The only thing in human existence that can say I deserve better is pride. I deserve to move up the chain. I deserve to be treated this way, not this way. See, but humility is seeking the lowest place. So what if you got mistreated? Okay, well, you know, I'm not walking out the door today looking, okay, who can mistreat me really good? Let's go spend time with that one. Um, But you know what? If I really am after humility, it may be the people who make me feel that way that are better for me to be around than the ones who just always make me feel stroked and appreciate it, and marvel, and oh, aren't you just? See, what's happening in, in us when we're wounded, self it's pride. I deserve to be treated better than that, and that's why I'm so angry about this, so sensitive about it. So listen, it may be a quiet sin, uh, but it is pride hiding as something else. Most of the quarrels among Christian workers arise from the clamoring of this gigantic me. How few of us understand the true secret of of taking our seats in the lowest rooms? Listen, I know nobody walked into this building today really seeking to be overlooked and unappreciated. Is that what you were thinking? You know, I'm, I'm really hoping whoever the people are that are significant to me here today, they don't even walk up and tell me hi. I'm hoping they walk right past me and don't even notice I was there. I'm hoping they call me later this week and say, hey, Keith, didn't notice you in church Sunday. You doing okay? He didn't notice me in church. I was there. I was on the front row. You know, I mean, why do we respond this way? Because, see, we're after something. And you know what we're not after in those moments? We're not after Humility. I don't want to dwell in the place where people don't notice me. I don't want to be unappreciated. But, you know, I guarantee you this. That whole conversation will end the moment I get in the presence of God. And I find the one who really is worthy. I'm going to begin to ask myself questions like, okay, why was I ever seeking to be at the top of people's list? When he is the one who's worthy. Why would I for a moment want to steal some of the light from God and get it on me? Why would I want me to be bigger in the eyes of others? Why would I not want him to be bigger? Why would I not be joyfully celebrating the fact that people are not looking to me? They are looking to God. They are looking to God's creation the way he made it for his glory. And they're looking and celebrating. They're even celebrating somebody else besides me. Because God has done a work in saving that person and giving them gifting and abilities that, that I don't have, and they shine in that moment in a way that I don't shine, I have, a, I have an opportunity either to be jealous of that person, become angry, avoid them, slander them, or to celebrate. Say, God, how wonderful are your works that you would save one lost like me and deposit in them your spirit and work in their life so that others are affected turning their attention to you for you to be glorified in their lives. Lord, I couldn't want anything more than I want that. Humility wants that. Pride hates it. All right, let me close with this thought. And you can make your way back up here. Last thing I'll put in your outline is pressing the reset button of humility. It means being eager to find my place. And to desire God to have his place in my life and in his world. How did idolatry ever become an issue to us? Because we saw some benefit in eating of the tree or in accomplishing that or making our life this way or getting people to see us a certain way or in being attractive a certain way or in getting some kind of money into our lives. How did these idols ever get there? Because pride was the fuse that was lit. And I wanted to change the order of things. I want to stick out amongst the people, like Satan said. I want, I want to rise above the stars of heaven. I want a significant place in their eyes. I want people to look at me differently than they look at somebody else. And if it means my physical body will make them look at me different, 
Or if it means I'm smarter than somebody else, I'll make sure I let them know I'm smarter. If it means I got a lot of money, even if I don't have a lot of money, if I could just look like I got a lot of money, I can get people to, to give me a raise. They'll improve my status and put me in a different place in life. How do I do that? Well, this product, that marriage, that situation. Right? Do you understand? These are all trees of the knowledge of good and evil. They're shortcuts. They cut out the middleman. They're a way for you and I to benefit our lives without God. But remember, idolatry is the displacement of God. The men that we've met in Scripture who encountered God, they didn't walk away, head hung low, not wanting what God has. They were launched into the purpose of God. Listen, only the grace of God could launch Isaiah and Ezekiel into their ministries. These guys were lone prophets, lonely lone prophets. They did not have a bunch of people saying, oh, Isaiah, when you preach, dude, I am so affected. (laughs) I mean, you know, everybody I'm talking to, it's a buzz, Isaiah. The meeting we had last night, it was, I mean, we are buzzing today. We are repenting of stuff left and right, my friend. Your ministry is unbelievable. That was never going to be Isaiah's ministry. It would never be Ezekiel's ministry. But it was what God called them to. And they were humbled in the presence of God. So they were quite capable of doing it. Because that's not what they were after. They were after the glory of God in God's world being put on display. Now listen, this, is, this needs to find its way into your home, your marriage, your relationship with your children, how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. The reason why we got so much conflict and there's so much opportunity for sin is because the fuse of pride was lit. And I saw an opportunity for me to have something that would further me. Well, listen, the only way you could have interest in that is that you are not near to God. That's why James says, draw near to God. Because when you do, you cannot help but be humbled. You will find in him a worthiness that makes you want to vomit. That you were seeking to be found worthy in the eyes of people. What was I thinking? Why would I want that for my life? No, God, give me the lowest place. Give me the place that will not impinge upon your glory. The Bible says that God exalts those who humble themselves because, interestingly, when creation gets in its proper place, it is God-exalting. When creation gets humble before God and makes God the ultimate pursuit of our lives, then God is exalted and we all find our place and the joy of God fills the people of God. This was, this was, a, this was a challenging Word, because I, I, I hope and I trust God to make it simple and clear enough. I, I know I'm often not simple. Um, but I don't believe any of us can move an inch from any issue of idolatry without first pressing the reset button. God in my life, no longer about me. God, I want this to be about you. I want all that I am to be about you. I want your glory to be my pursuit. I want people to see your glory and be drawn to you. God, I'm not seeking a platform. I don't seek for the pleasures of something for me. God, I, I want you to receive pleasure in all that I do. I don't believe any of us will move from our idols without pressing that button first and reordering our lives. Let's, you guys stand up. I'm going to sit down. <laughs> Lord, would you give us 
nearness to you so that we can experience grace upon grace. Or the grace that will illuminate our unworthiness and at the same time will burn clean and atone for our sins. Will give us motivation to stand and to be eager to run after your glory in our lives, Lord, in this church, in our relationships, in all that we possess and do. God, may our hearts overflow, as the psalmist said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God, all throughout this auditorium today, God, give us a sense of joyous release, Lord, of pressing the reset button. God, I've I've pursued my glory, my benefit. Lord, this morning, I want to reset my life, Lord. I want to reset your place in my life, Lord. I, I, I want you to receive glory from my life, be it through celebration or suffering, be it through strength or weakness, be it through pleasure or conflict. God, I want you to receive glory, the attention of creation to be turned and stirred to you. God, the angels that look on to walk away, not impressed by me, impressed, oh God, by you at work and your glorious activity in our lives.